Welcome to Midweek Liberty. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And our program today, we're going to be discussing roaming virtues. And we're going to be looking again at G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. This is something one can go out and get for free. It's a public domain text, but it has some stuff which is really relevant to our culture today. We've got some exciting things we're going to be talking about today. We had originally planned to talk about the money pit, as in the real money pit. It's actually a place, and there's something really we can learn about that. We're going to have a conversation about pruning and, and making our characters better and, and moving away from things which just consume us. But we're have moved that to later this week so if anybody wants to hear about that that's a little bit of a, a tease of what we'll be looking at later this week but today we're going to be talking about roaming virtue and the roaming virtues that wander around in our culture so we're going to start out in gk chesterton's orthodoxy in the past we've talked a lot about chapter two this is chapter three and, and it's called the suicide of thought if anyone is looking for something which is really fascinating to read you will not be let down by reading chesterton's orthodoxy it's written over 100 years ago first published in 1908 even though it's really old it is far from outdated the truth which is conveyed by this is is just wonderful and we've had a lot of stuff go on in our, our world recently and a lot of times people look to, to government policies to to somehow enhance culture culture cannot be fixed using government policies we need healthy individuals in our culture if we are going to to have a healthy civilization we need to be people who are well developed as individuals and in order for us to be well developed as individuals we need to understand virtue we can't just pick and choose virtues at random we can't just go in and do a, a grocery list of virtues we need to understand how virtues interact in our world and that you can't just select one or two of them or create them on the spot and expect to have good results virtues are something which truly transcend time they're much bigger than anything we can imagine and i have a challenge for you today I want you to, to, to take a moment and think for yourself, what is a virtue that is important? Whether it be something like charity, whether it be compassion, being someone who is a protector, think about a virtue for a moment and ask yourself, is that virtue separate from the facts of life? All right, hold up, hold up, hold up. Are we giving our listeners homework now? You already mentioned a book to read and now you're asking people to own up to a challenge? Yeah, I think it's good for us to interact with all of this. So so just take a few moments, think of a virtue. All right, so you'd want everyone to think of a virtue, such as charity or the act of protection, and then contemplate if that virtue is separate from all other facts of life? Yeah, I want us to really realize that virtues are not something which is so independent from reality that we can just pick and choose them. So let's see what Chesterton has to say about this. This is chapter three, and let's get into it. The modern world is not evil. In some ways, the modern world is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. All right, so I want us just to think about this for a second. Yes, this book was first published over 100 years ago, but this is so relevant to today. Chesterton, in his dime, he was dealing with people who were, were early socialists. He was dealing with people who were trying to bring that to England. And he was also dealing with people who were theologically deterministic. In other words, they didn't think free will had a, a good role in, in theology. These things have transcended time. They're, they're problems which we still deal with in our modern world. And Chesterton, he makes the claim, our world is not actually evil, but perhaps it is overfilled with things which are good. Notice how the language there he uses. He describes that there are wild and roaming virtues. In other words, virtues just running around wild and crazy. Now, that may seem a little bit bizarre to say. So tonight, I want you to open up your mind. And, and be prepared for some things which are going to sound really weird at first, but if you'll just hang on and bear through this text, it is absolutely fascinating. When a religious scheme is shattered, as Christianity was shattered at the Reformation, 
It is not merely the vices that are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose, and they wander and do damage. Okay, so when we think of things like the Reformation, whenever we think of, of church structures collapsing or more traditional things collapsing, we think the sort of logical conclusion that people will go off and they will indulge in the vices of the world. They'll go and they'll become hedonists. They'll just want to, to pleasure themselves and just indulge in the things which are, are fun and, and move away from meaning. This is true. This is true to a, a large extent. People, when they, the structure of things collapse, they, they will go and indulge in vices. However, there's much more to it than that. Obviously, that's the easy thing to see. But what about the side of virtues? What happens there? But the virtues are let loose also. And the virtues wander more wildly. And the virtues do more terrible damage. All right, so this is fascinating. As we read Chesterton, he makes this argument that when things collapse, when morality and civilization collapse, when something like the Reformation happens, which again, last week there was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and it's a very big deal. If one is not familiar with the history of that, I encourage you to go and learn about the Reformation. Even if you're somebody who, who doesn't see yourself as part of the faith, you need to know about the Reformation. It's very important. Well, anyways, Chesterton says when these things happen, sure, the vices go out in the world. But the really damaging things can be when the virtues are let loose. When the virtues become wild, when they become undomesticated, when virtues go out and they separate themselves and they roam around aimlessly. So let's continue on hearing what he has to say. The modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and, wand and are wandering alone. Thus some scientists care for truth, and their truth is pitiless. Thus some humanitarians only care for pity, and their pity, I'm sorry to say, is often untruthful. Okay, we see this and there's so much. This is something which really transcends time. This is so relevant to our culture today. We, we need to read this. This is a fascinating text. Chesterton makes the argument that when virtues aim without a goal, they just aim into, into the sky aimlessly, pointlessly, this is where we get a lot of destructive things in the world. And again, we've seen this throughout the 20th century. He makes the argument the scientists, they may be interested in truth, but they don't have any empathy. They don't care for, for things that happen. We've seen all sorts of experiments and things which went on. You've seen in both the, the Soviets and especially with the Nazis, a lot of things they were doing. When you just care about getting to the end result of something, science in and of itself is completely unobjective. Ethics has nothing to do with it. And he's saying when you care about truth, but you don't care about anything ethical, you just care about a material truth, damage can happen. Of course, the, the productions of, of modern science are fantastic, but we cannot isolate the different virtues. And he goes on to make the next claim, which is even more destructive in our modern world, where he says, those who are the humanitarians, they have the virtue of pity, but yet they don't have truth. We see this in our culture so much, where people have watered down love to be empathy. One of the, the features of Chesterton's logic is when, when people are doing things which are destructive and they're doing it in the name of God, he says, this is not, do not use God as your scapegoat. That motive is yours and yours alone. We see people who have some watered down version of love, which is really just petty empathy. They go out and they, they want to do things without transformation, without the logos. They don't want to actually better people's lives. They just want to go out and pity people and give people a hug. And they, they want to have these cheap policies of love without the difficult policies of, of transformation, without the logos. And what do you get? You get chaos. They don't have truth. A lot of people in our world are in places of suffering and misery. But if the truth of why they're in suffering or misery is not dealt with, 
giving them a hug, empathizing with someone is nothing more than, than a prolonging, an agitation of the suffering. If we actually want to, to pity people, we must have truth. We must understand why they're there. We can't just go out and say we're going to have this cheap policy of love and think that the world is better. That, that's not even what Christ was doing in his ministry. He didn't go to people and say, I'm going to give you a hug because you can't walk. No, he did things which brought transformation to people in their individual circumstances. Anytime you see Christ dealing with someone, he brings transformation to them that is relevant to their individual circumstances. To remove the logos from love is not Christ-like. To remove transformation from the ministry of Christ is not Christ-like. And I know there will be a lot of people who come after me at that, but that's something which we need to say. Pity without truth is nothing but petty foolishness. It's a roaming virtue. Well, let's carry on a little bit further. For example, Mr. Blashford attacks Christianity because he is mad on one Christian virtue, the merely mystical and almost irrational virtue of charity. He has a strange idea that he will make it easier for, to forgive sins by saying that there are no sins to forgive. His mercy would mean mere anarchy. All right, so this is fantastic. We see this in our world everywhere. Chesterton was, was not only seeing this in his world around him, but he was seeing something which was so powerful it, it comes back again in a cycle plaguing society. This idea of moral relativism, that if you can just say there is no immorality, well, then you don't have to deal with, with immorality. You can, you can remove that and you can take the, the issues and put them in external factors. We see this all the time in our world when people want to remove personal responsibility from the situations and things that they're in. Yeah, people get places because of things they didn't choose. That's true. But also sometimes people get in places because of decisions that they have made. Sometimes other people have made bad decisions that put people in a bad place. And if we want to help people, we need to have truth. We need to have the scales, the scales of justice, where we can weigh things out and we can look and say, look, this is the real problem. And if we address the real problem, then we can get people to a higher place. This is a really fascinating text. If anyone is looking for something fun and enjoyable to read, I, I challenge you, please go and read G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. Yes, it is a theological book, but it's so much more than that. It is a, a tool for liberty that will take and inspire you. It will give you personal freedom if you read that. And on that, we're going to wrap up our, our live session now. For those who, who are watching, I, we will be posting the rest of this, this episode here in the, the next few days. And we have something really exciting happening. Um, we're going to be interviewing someone on the topic of Greece. So that's something really forward, um, really exciting to look forward to. And with that, I hope you have a blessed day. I hope everybody is prepared to look like a, a giant grotesque monster from an H.P. Lovecraft novel or short story because we are about to make contact with a higher plane of thinking. We're going to continue on reading in G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, which by the way is free. It's a public domain book. You can find it on Amazon Kindle and you can get it for free. Um, we're going to be reading in this chapter two, The Lunatic. There's something in there which is fantastic, very relevant to today's culture. So we're going to get right in that. And yes, I did throw in a little bit of a joke about the H.P. Lovecraft monsters, the, love, the Bloodborne monsters. There's something bizarre in that sort of horror where when people reach a higher thinking of knowledge, they turn into a monster. But it kind of rings consistently with what 
G.K. Chesterton notes about the sane man. The sane man realizes that he has a touch of the madman. The sane man realizes that he has a, a touch of, of complexity, that he's more complex than he is self-aware, that he, he has doubts. He has a touch of, of the monster within him. All right, so going straight into this, we're going to read a quote from, from chapter 2. So everybody hear this. Keep an open mind as we, we read this because it is so relevant to today. I want everybody to really indulge in this. The Christian admits that the universe is manifold and even miscellaneous, just as the sane man knows that he is complex. All right, I'm going to take a second and say a lot of times people hear me say that people are more complex than we are aware how complex we are. The world is more complex than we are aware of it. G.K. Chesterton, again, was making this argument. I am by no means the first person to, to make this argument. Chesterton's making it back over 100 years ago. When we are sane, when we have some level of self-awareness, we realize that we are, are quite complex. Well, let's continue on reading. The sane man knows that he has a touch of the beast, a touch of the devil, a touch of the saint, a touch of the citizen. Nay, the really sane man knows that he has a touch of the madman. But the materialist's world is quite simple and solid, just as the madman is quite sure he is sane. All right, so that last statement there, on the materialist and the madman, both being sure they are sane and that their world is solid, that's what I want us to talk about. Many times we hear the language of materialist, we might associate that with materialism, we might associate that with consumerism, the idea of people really being obsessed with things and putting too much value in things. When Chesterton is talking about the materialist, he is talking about people who look at the world purely in environmental terms. They do not care for, for things which are abstract. They do not see transcending truths in the world. They see everything in the world operates on this cause and effect relationship. We see this in our world today. It's not under the language of materialists, but we see people in our world today who see everything as purely environmental. Personal responsibility, merit, have little to do with it. It's all environment which dictates who people are. And these people are hyper-obsessed with demographic things like race, people's socioeconomic economic status. They're, they're obsessed with, with what gender people are, and so forth and so on. These people, these collectivist people, are exactly the same thing as the materialists that Chesterton is talking about here. They, they think that their world is solid. They see the world. They think everything is, is just as they see it, and they're, they're completely sane. And they, they never have any room for doubt, because if they had doubt, then everything would, would fall. Well, anyways, let me pick up in Chesterton. So when I say materialist and madmen, I want you to think, who in our society matches this? Materialists and madmen never have doubts. Just indulge in that. There's so many people in our world today where their ideology is focused on not doubting what they say. A good metric where whether or not people are telling you the truth, are they connecting you with the source material, or are they just wanting to interpret stuff for you? There are so many people in our world who don't want people to see the truth. They, they never have truth even as part of their... Their discussion, they never have truth as part of the things that they send out into the world. They always say, does it match the ideology? Is it, is it insert term here? Is it insert modern, really conjured up virtue here? Does it match these things? Never is the question, how true is it? How reliable is it? Yeah, I will say something about most, most of those types of arguments is, I mean, anytime you try to fight it, it instantaneously becomes a moral dilemma. There yeah. must be something wrong with your morals if you can't mm -hmm. agree with this, even though there's nothing to back it up. Yeah, and that's, that's how a lot of this stuff is sold. It's, it's really terrible. It's really unfortunate. It's really tragic. Let me read on just a little bit further in here. 
Spiritual doctrines do not actually limit the mind as do materialistic denials. Okay, let me break again. Yes, G.K. Chesterton, he is a theologian. He was a, a Anglican and then a Catholic, and he is coming at it from this perspective. But at the same time, what he is saying has so much truth in it that it transcends just an Anglican turned into a Catholic from over 100 years ago. He makes the statement that spiritual doctrines are not actually what limit our mind. The materialistic denials are the things which limit our mind. And when we say materialistic, things like collectivism, things where people have a fixed worldview that they are not willing to doubt. Continuing on, and again, keep an open mind as we read this. This is a really fascinating statement here. Even if I believe in immorality, I need not think about it. But if I disbelieve in immorality, I must not think about it. That is a powerful statement. Because this is, this is the thing where, where the sane person realizes the world is complex. They realize that there are things such as morality. There is things such as personal responsibility. Now, because you believe in immorality doesn't mean you have to be an immoral person. You can think about it. You can go down that road as far as you want to. But if you're somebody who makes the argument that everything is about collectivism, people only have stuff because of privilege, they only have things because of oppression, if everything is connected to the group identity instead of the individual's role, which not only is this antithetical to the, the logic of being born again and the logic of discipleship, which we can get to that at a later point, it's fatalistic and it's very close-minded. Because if you don't believe that personal responsibility is real, you don't believe that immorality is real, then you cannot allow yourself to think about it. You have to go out and you have to screech and you have to yell and you have to shut people down. You have to disconnect people from truth because you cannot allow yourself to think about it. It's so amazing. This was first published in 1908, but this transcends time so well. This is a beautiful text. And read the last statement from this that I'd like to read. It says, in the first case, the road is open and I can go as far as I like. In the second, the road is shut. When we allow our minds to realize that there are things which are good and bad, we have the tools open. We can, we can set a course for a better destiny. But when we say there is no morality, the argument of moral relativism, that everybody, whatever they view as good, is good, when we take all of history's virtues and we take all of things which have brought us to this point, we throw them away, the road is shut. Minds are shut. And this is what I find so tragic because I want our world to do well. I want people to have peace. I want people to have liberty in their life. I want everybody to have the opportunity for liberty in their life. But when our minds are shut, when we're convicted, and again, it's always some sort of moral conviction about this deterministic environmental logic that doesn't allow us to hear opposing arguments, that doesn't allow us to doubt ourselves, that doesn't allow us to take a few moments to be self-aware, we find ourselves in a very tragic and unfortunate place. I will say, back to what you said earlier, just about how true all this still applies to today it's crazy to see how even if you look at the people that he's referring to back then they're the same people well they're not the same people they're different people using the same methods for the same agenda the same end goal under a, a different guise i mean like it is it is crazy to see the nouns have slightly changed but the verbs are the same the outcome is the same. The motive is, is virtually identical. And it's so unfortunate 
And again, people are more complex than they are aware. They don't even see the motives and they don't see the pathological conclusions of the things that they're indulging in. It bothers me in the church when, when we have people who come and they say, we all, they take the language of the body of Christ and say, well, we're, we're a body, there's an aggregation, and they, they water it down to crayon level thinking to say, this means we're collectivists. They, they layer this down to, to really what is one or two-dimensional thinking. They're not capable of thinking in three dimensions. And they pretty much revoke the whole logic of being born again. Being born again, the spiritual birth as opposed to the fleshly birth. This means you're, not, you're no longer prisoned or enchained by the things which you were born into. You're free from that. The collectivist mindset that says we're a collective body does not incorporate being born again. It doesn't incorporate Jesus' transformation when he brings to people. Whenever Christ comes to people, he never treats people as groups. And what I mean by that, Nicodemus comes. He doesn't put the guilt of the Pharisees on Nicodemus. The woman at the well, he doesn't deal with her as some abstraction of humanity. He deals for her who as she is. When there's a blind man, there's a, a man who can't walk, he tells people, get up, go walk. It's always transformation tailored to their circumstances. Jesus always considers the circumstances of the individual. Collectivism doesn't do that. Being born again means your individual circumstances are dealt with and you're brought to a higher place. Yeah, there's a body, but there's many members. One doesn't go to the doctor and say, well, I've got a sore on my arm. And they say, well, we're going to give you something which is, is to, to treat general skin disease when you've got a broken bone. This idea of collectivism, one size fits all, is, is so lazy thinking. People have been doing it for a long time. Just because it's in new clothes and the nouns have slightly changed doesn't mean it's, it's changed and that's that. We'll be back in a bit. Alrighty, so we have something really exciting for us tonight. We're going to be having an interview, and I've got a friend with me here in our, our studio, Damon, and we're going to be talking about the, the topic of grief and suffering. In the past, we've looked a lot at Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. We've talked about how suffering can be like a gas and fill someone and consume us. But tonight, I really wanted to, to have someone come in who's got a, a great testimony, he's got some great insight and great advice that we can all really learn from. So let's get right into it. And this is Damon here's with me, and I'm just going to let you start by sharing with us a little bit about who you are and what where you're coming from okay. in regards to this topic. Like you said, my name is Damon. I have grown up in the Ashland City area near Nashville of Tennessee for most of my adult life. So when he's talking about the knowledge of the grief and suffering, I have a, I wouldn't say a vast amount of knowledge, but I do know parts of the grief and suffering process itself. At 18, my, a week before my high school graduation, my dad committed suicide and we had to kind of postpone our high school graduation euphoria for his burial, which was the day after graduation. And then a few years later, when I was 24, May of 2015, my back went out and I had to undergo emergency back surgery. And for a brief period of time was severely weakened from the waist down to where I had to learn how to basically walk again and was kind of had to treat it like a pretty much like a child had to crawl and then from that I had to learn how to walk assisted with a walker and then slowly learning how to get my legs and body moving the way they did so it's I wouldn't say I've had the easiest life that's just the two major things that I can think of right now 
that have caused some grief and some suffering, but well, it's not been a horrible life, but it has had its uh, unique set of challenges. Well, those are both very significant things. Mm -hmm. Those are both things which have crippled people for life. And when I say crippled people for life, I don't just mean physically, but cause people to really never function in society again, especially that's a really young age. That's right around the age of 18. That's how old Anthony over there is. Uh, but to have something that devastating at what is normally a, a, a peak of people's lives, high school graduation is sort of that going into adulthood. We've finished this era, everything's coming together. And that, that was a huge, huge event. And I know you had mentioned to me in the past, this idea that grief and when your, your dad had passed, a lot of people really wanted to, to point blame and do a lot of stuff like that. But you were saying grief was not just about involving yourself in the suffering, but there was something about grief where you remembered the good times. And grief was not always just about the negative history, but also there was something to grief where, well, I'll just let you, you share with it a little bit. And that's kind of what I mentioned to you earlier in the past about that was during the funeral and even the months um, afterwards, the funeral, there was a lot of um, finger pointing. There was a lot of victim blaming in a sense. Uh, people wanted to try to point out why he did it, what caused it, who did, who inhibited it, who kind of pushed him to that edge. And it was a lot of it was a lot of negativity. It was a lot of he did it because of you. No, he did it because of this. No, he did it because of that. And what I realized later in life after watching just old video, looking at old pictures, watching old videos, and just remembering is that grief. A lot of people want to make grief a one spectrum thing, just sadness. And grief is so much more than sadness. Grief, you you, start, you want to think about you're grieving. You're thinking of just, oh, they're gone. You're thinking, oh, something's happened. But you also think of the better times. You know, the times when the person was around, the times when you didn't have your certain affliction. And you think about the happiness that coincides with that grief. It's a very yin-yang kind of thing. You have the grief, but then you have the good parts that can either, that can both pull you out of, and then not only that can intensify the grief as well. And it was, it became a point to where it kind of, it was one of the things that helped me kind of let go of my grief was realizing that his life was not comprised of that one moment. There were plenty of moments, both good and bad, throughout his life, and that a person's life or event should not be classified by one thing, such as grief. And even grief itself should not be classified under one spectrum. It can be a varying spectrum. It can be a varying, it's like a piece of a puzzle that paints the bigger picture of what his suicide was. His suicide was tragic. But that doesn't mean that his life had to be tragic because of the suicide. It just meant that life get, got a little much for this person and they decided that was the way it, but that wasn't him throughout his life. He was a good person. He was a bad person. He was a person not classified by grief. I think that's really, that's really one of the most powerful things I think I've heard someone. And as a pastor, I've dealt with a lot of people who are grieving. And, it, and I have yet to see many people who can make that realization that you have just made. 
And it's something which when you first told it to me, I, it took me back for a second. I thought this is an attitude that is so rare and so unique. This is something which is powerful enough. We need to, to share this, this thought with others that grief is not just about sadness, that grief should not just be defined by a single moment. Because I think that as people, our minds like to focus on one moment. Because we can, we can sort of concentrate, well, if somebody's no longer with us, we can concentrate around the, the moment of that passing. And if there's such a, a great tragedy as what you had mentioned there, it can overwhelm us and it can cloud our minds and, and disable us from really being able to see the bigger picture. And that's just a fascinating thing. People really need to take a few moments and, and chew on that idea that, that grief is not just about a monolithic slab of, of, of one moment that covers everything, but it's something where you remember the dynamic life that somebody had. That's <laughs> our world is so moved away from critical thinking. We've talked about this a lot in our program, but that really is taking the idea of critical thinking to grief and saying, I'm going to be bigger than this moment and remember everything about them. And that was something where something outside of just your normal, that was another person involved. Mm -hmm. But then you later in life, you had something again, which a lot of people will use that as an excuse to really write off the rest of their own life, having such a, a tragic physical illness come upon you at a young age. So tell me a little bit about that and your attitude that you had with that situation. Because when you were talking about your attitude in the hospital and when you, you found out that you had the problem, your, your attitude was, again, it was, it was different than almost anyone I've ever seen in that situation. So in the beginning, after my back surgery, I had an emergency laminectomy on three discs in my back basically my nerves were pinched between the bits of bone the lamina and the spine and my discs had pinched my spinal cord together and had caused almost paralysis on my lower half so the doctor performed the lamina removed the lamina my spine is still stable my nerves have all this room so i'm and as you can tell my legs they work you can't see them but they can work i can wiggle my toes i can walk around i can even jog Everything works as it should. I still suffer from a minute a case of back pain, but that's only if I've exerted myself standing for longer than I probably should and etc. I can walk just fine, jog just fine. I really don't experience any pain, etc. But it was the first, it was the couple days after I'd gotten out of the ICU that I was actually in the rehab floor trying to learn how to do everything again. By that point in time, I'd learned, you know, proper I'd regained almost everything except for the strength to actually walk and, you know, wiggle my toes and ankles. It was a particularly trying day. It was after, a day after I learned how to shower and stuff. I'd hit my head in the shower. I'd completely broken down, you know, life, you know, again, grief, suffering. And I don't know what possessed me. I was alone in my hospital room. My family had gone for supplies or something. I can't remember what it was, but I got on the internet and I was checking, we had a GoFundMe for my hospital bills. And I was looking around just local GoFundMe's to see what everybody was doing. And there was this one, it was about this two year old girl. No, it was about this year old girl. She had a car accident in Jolton where a drunk driver had hit her mother's car and it killed the mother on act. It killed the mother on impact. She had two siblings in the car, which walked away with just scrapes and bruises. But this little girl, who was a year old, suffered an injury, which pretty much, at one year old, rendered three out of her four limbs completely immobile. She could only really move her left arm and hand, and she could maybe wiggle her fingers on her right hand, but that was about it. There was this little girl, fresh, new in life, 
still infant could barely understand you know the world around her and it was taken away like that by the actions of someone else and they were taking this girl to the best neurosurgeons the best rehab facilities and her future was up in there and it was just the families begging for any donation to help this little girl and it kind of really said it, it kind of really brought me back to my senses where it wasn't so much that I was downplaying my own situation because my situation was still pretty, it was pretty bad. It wasn't horrifically bad, but it was still one of those, I need to learn how to walk again. I could be the wheelchair bound for the rest of my life. Fortunately, I wasn't. I thank God every day for that. But it was realizing that other people suffer and can suffer so greatly that you can't ignore everybody else because your world is crashing around because it creates that isolationist ideal that the world around you is only unfair to you when the world is a random place and can be unfair to anyone at the drop of a hat. This little girl one minute had her mom, had her whole family together, was, you know, she could move everything. And then it was a split second decision. And now she's immobile and has lost her mom. So it was kind of that point where I kind of snapped back to reality and realized that I didn't have time to grieve. I didn't need, I didn't need to grieve for myself because this little girl not only needed for people to be strong for her, but it was a sense of she would want me to be strong because I'm at a better point than she is. So I felt like I shouldn't waste the opportunities that I know she won't have. And that's something again, that is so easy for us to be consumed in our own situation and to realize that throughout the world, Suffering is something which it can come on anybody at any given time, and it could be anything from a slight stubbing of the toe to a, a crippling medical condition. You know, that's one of the things about a, a, something like this because it can really happen to anybody. Nobody is above a, a health crisis in, at any given time. We really aren't. Any, any sort of bizarre circumstance could happen. And sure, you might say, well, it's unlikely, but it still could happen to anybody. And in those moments, it's easy to be consumed with the concern for the self, but to say, I'm going to have this attitude. And again, you're, you're here, you're walking, you've, you've worked through this. It has not defined who you are. You have been able to overcome that. And that's a powerful thing because there's a lot of people who would rather say, well, this is, I'm going to, to wallow in this and, and it's all about me. It's all about my suffering, but to say, I'm going to conquer this and I'm going to move on. So one last question I have for you, we went through Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. We talked about it a lot. The idea that suffering is like a gas that will fill you if you allow it. And whether it be living in, in Auschwitz as sort of he was, and he made the, the decision where he said, I'm going to not escape. I want to stay here and, and deal with the, the patients I have. He was a doctor. Uh, he wasn't a, a medical doctor, but he was functioning a bit as one. But my question for you would be, what advice would you have for someone in the midst of suffering, as well as those who are around somebody who is suffering? So we'll go through, through those together. What, would you, what advice would you have for someone who's in the middle of, of grief or a moment of suffering right now in their life? Utilize it. 
And what I mean by that is like what you said, suffering can fill a person up like a gas. And that can be all that they are composed of is just, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. But one of the things that I used, not only in my dad's suicide, not only in my back surgery, but even nowadays when something bad happens, I believe, and this is just a personal philosophy, but there is a point to suffering that maybe we don't understand. We might never understand only until after we die, will we understand what it is. And to me, there's only two ways you can really deal with suffering. You can either let it fill you, let it consume you. And that's all you focus on, or you can utilize your suffering in a way that gets you out of that suffering. You turn that gas into a fuel source. And an example of that would be when I started to learn how to walk again, it was really hard for my legs to, cause I'd lost a lot of muscle mass. It was really hard for my legs to pick up my body and move it. And it was painful. It wasn't painful in the sense of my nerves were hurt. My, my back was bothering me. It was a sense of, it was literally like trying to run a 5k after doing a hundred squats, after having to walk across hot coals. That was just my muscles. Like I've, I haven't done this in two months. Stop, 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 stop. You have to realize that suffering doesn't have to be meaningless. It can mean something. And what you do with that suffering ultimately defines where you'll go. If you want to let it consume you, you will go nowhere. And that's it. But if you take the suffering and you work it to your advantage, for me, my legs were bothering me. My legs were weak. The suffering was, I couldn't really move. So I took that suffering and continued working my legs to where they would not suffer as much when working them. It was just like a workout and slowly, but surely my legs accustomed, my legs became accustomed to lifting the weight. It became my suffering became my fuel source. And eventually I got back to where I could walk just fine with my dad's suicide. My suffering was remembering the fact that he's no longer here, but then it became, yes, he's no longer here, but remember the good times you had with him. Don't let it overweigh the fact that he's not here. And that's what I really think people need to understand. You might suffer, but make it mean something. That really is the heart of the whole book, Man's Search for Meaning. That's in whole embodiment of it, is you, you find meaning in life when you don't let it consume you, but you find a way to work through it. You use it, turn it into a fuel source. That's fantastic. But last thing, um, as far as other people, because again, mm -hmm. people tend to, to behave in aggregations. And, and earlier you'd been talked about how people, they always wanted to point fingers. Well, what is the, the proper way of dealing with someone who is in the, the midst of suffering and, and removing people away from it's not just about it's not just about that moment but how did what would you say about moving towards the the bigger picture they're realizing it's not just about the the sadness of it if you're trying to assist somebody who is suffering realize that they're where they are right now is a place nobody should be it's not a good place for the mind body or spirit so if they lash out if they get angry if they cry the best thing you can do is be there for them i can tell you from the bottom of my heart that 
people being there just to hear me vent is so much more helpful than people realize. It's not about finding a way out. It's having people there to help you when you stumble on the way out. And if you're a person suffering right now, realize that people won't understand. There are some things that people will never understand, but you don't want to wish they would understand because you don't want to inflict that suffering onto them because you should never want to inflict suffering onto somebody just so they'll understand. You can explain it and they might can try to understand it, but never wish what you're going through on another person because that doesn't help ever. Well, that that's something definitely true. Um, so many people, again, it, it kind of goes back to that internal resent. Well, anyways, thank you much, man. It's been great having you on. Of course, you're always welcome here with us. It's been we great. May, we may come back and talk about some other things in the future. And on that, I hope everybody enjoyed our, our program. And you can find us now. We're on iTunes. That's sort of the big announcement we have. We're now a podcast on iTunes. If you get on iTunes and search for Kingdom of the Logos, you can find both the Midweek Pre Liberty programs as well as the Tools for Liberty programs. And, of course, we're always on YouTube and on Facebook. And please subscribe. And on that, I hope you have a blessed day.